a reading from the book of Genesis. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. Now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them, and he wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of the sack and said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of the sack. At this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man... The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us, and he took us to be spies in the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We've never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go away. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob said to the, Jacob, their father said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should come to him on the journey that you are to make, and you would bring him down, my gray hairs would... would with sorrow to show the word of the Lord. All right, good morning. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, if you're a guest with us, uh, again, thanks for being here. It means a lot to us that you'd come and worship. Uh, my name is Drew. I'm the pastor of Discipleship, and it is uh, genuinely a great honor to be with you this morning as we continue in our journey through the life of Joseph. Um, and a pretty wild journey at that. Um, as we get into today, I was thinking this week, uh, back in my childhood, and it was 1989, at a place called Biscayne Mall, which 
Very questionable if this was truly a mall or should have been called a mall for those that remember what malls are. Um, I found this very vintage picture. So here's basically what this was. Um, How I remember it as a young child is it was a long, dark hallway, not a good start, right, that had uh, two stores that I can remember. One was a baseball card trading store. I have no idea how it stayed open. Nobody was ever in there. One was a watch store. At the end of this long hall, there were um, carousel rides for kids that clearly weren't safe. And then it ended in Walmart. Um, And so that's this place, right? And we would go there on occasion. This wasn't a super Walmart. There's nothing super about this place. Um, Growing up in Missouri, we would go there on occasion. I remember this one day specifically, even at five years old, because it obviously had an impact on me. Um, I was there, I believe, with my mother, with my aunt, and some cousins. And on the way out of Walmart... Um, I noticed this little uh, dinosaur toy, and at five years old, I wanted it. And I knew my mom wouldn't purchase that for me, so instead, I just grabbed it and put it in my pocket and made my way out of the store. Now, within about five minutes, I was terrified. I felt so bad. This weight of guilt, what have I done? What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my family? At five, you have no idea the ramifications here. And I remember we were getting ready to leave the uh, parking lot in the van, and I could not take it any longer, and I just broke down. I said, I I took this, I showed it to my mom, and she made me go back and talk to the manager and give it back. Um, But I remember at that very, even young age, feeling the weight of this thing I had done, this weight of what we would say is sin. And today we're going to talk a lot about sin, and I know that's not a popular thing or or maybe the most pleasant to think about or talk about it, but it's incredibly necessary. See, there are ramifications for when sin goes unchecked or when sin goes undealt with. You become numb to it, sort of just becomes normative. Maybe you become consumed by it. It's all you think about. Um, dishonesty comes in. You find that you're not able to really be truthful with others, truthful with yourself, truthful with God. Guilt and shame that leads to mental distress, emotional distress. There's tension in relationships. There's distance and even maybe disconnection in relationships. Relationships with others, a relationship with God. So how do we deal with this very real weight of sin? What do we do? What do we not do? Where do we go? Why is it necessary and even critical that we feel this weight? In God's kindness, in his care for us, he actually answers all of this. And we get a glimpse of it today in our passage. Why does he do this? Because he loves us and he knows that there is only one solution to this weight. A weight that unchecked has the power to destroy. Eat away at us. Prevent us from living the life God actually intends us to live. He doesn't want that for any of us. So if you would, pray with me, and then we're going to dive into our passage today. Jesus, we thank you for this word. It's a challenging word. God, we thank you for this um, narrative that you have us in, looking at the life of Joseph and his brothers, his father. God, I pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds, I pray that where there's a temptation to maybe deceive ourselves or to 
push things to the side or to ignore them or to just sort of turn a blind eye or turn deaf ears, God, that you would take that temptation away. God, I pray most of all today, uh, I pray that you'd bring freedom. (laughs) I pray that you'd bring freedom from the bondage of sin and the effects of it. And so Jesus, uh, move now in our presence, we pray in your name. Amen. So as we look at today's passage, we're going to step back just a little bit to where Pastor Paul ended last week, just so we can get a a full picture of what's going on here. And if you're just joining us, um, a little bit of backtracking on the story where we are so far. Joseph, he is in a very high prominent position. We saw this a few weeks ago. He's placed in this position in Pharaoh's kingdom. And he's placed in this position that's essentially almost on equal ground as Pharaoh. How did he get there? Well, Joseph, after being betrayed twice, he's betrayed by his brothers at a young age of 17. They dislike him because his father loved him so much. They sell him into slavery. They wanted to kill him, but they decided to make money off instead. Sold him into slavery. He then goes to Egypt. He's under a master and rises to a prominent position in his house. But then he's betrayed a second time by that man's wife, who tells a lie about how Joseph was attempting to sleep with her, wasn't true. He's sent to prison. While he's in prison, um, he's positioned again in a leadership position over other prisoners. He interprets two dreams of men that are also in prison. Uh, Those both come true, and he says, hey, when you get out of here, remember me. Well, the guy who survives doesn't. He forgets about Joseph. But then Pharaoh has a dream. And he needs an interpreter. And this guy remembers and he says, hey, there's this guy, Joseph. He's in prison right now. He can interpret dreams. And he comes and he does interpret this dream. And he says, here's what this means. There's going to be seven years of plenty in the land. And everybody's going to be doing fantastic. And it's going to look great. And there's going to be no need for food. He said, but then it's going to be met with seven years of famine. And in order to avoid the people being destroyed, Egypt being destroyed from the famine, here's what you need to do. He has a plan. He's like, hey, take a fifth, store it up. And, and uh, as Pharaoh's saying, hey, who should be in charge of all this? It's like, well, Joseph, clearly. This guy's smart. He also interpreted the dream. And so he places him in this position. Now, go back to Joseph's family, the brothers who betrayed him, super dysfunction, a father who still doesn't know the truth but is brokenhearted, years later, says, hey, we need food. Go and buy food from Egypt because of this famine. He sends brothers to go do that. They come face to face with Joseph, the brother they betrayed, the brother they sold. They don't recognize Joseph, but Joseph recognizes them. He accuses them of being spies. They say, no way, we're honest men. We're not spies here. And as he decides how to deal with them, how to process through this, he confines them. And that's where we pick up today. So a lot's happened. Let's jump in. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live to his brothers, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. Bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. This was true, but also Joseph wanted a reason for his family and his youngest brother to come back. He said, so this, so that your words will be verified, you shall not die. And they did so. And they said to one another, 
In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered, did I not tell you not to sin against this boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And so Joseph, fully knowing that these are his brothers, give them instruction. They claim to be spies, and so they claim not to be spies. And so he says, okay, well, is, is good faith. I'm going to keep one of you here. The rest of you can take food back. Bring your youngest brother. Come back to me, and this brother will be released, right? As a sign of good faith. But where things get incredibly heartbreaking, if you notice it here, is when the brothers start to talk amongst themselves right in front of Joseph. As it tells us, there's an interpreter. They didn't know this was Joseph, and they didn't believe he could understand their language. And so they're having a side conversation right in front of him. They're having a conversation about what they did 20 years ago to him. And they have no idea that he can understand all of it. What they did 20 years ago was horrific. And it had a ripple effect, as sin often does. It crushed the heart of their father, who believes that Joseph has been dead, that he lost his son. And as uh, you get a taste of here, it wounded Joseph in a way that would be hard to imagine. Listen to what one of the brothers says here, right? He says, we're guilty, and that we saw the distress of his soul as he begged us and we did not listen. I mean, imagine the weight of this. Imagine the sadness here. A 17-year-old boy begging his brothers, saying, don't do this. Please don't do this. You're my brothers. Don't, don't kill me. Please don't sell me. And yet they don't listen to him. This is gut-wrenching. And so it makes sense in this conversation and in this tension, what happens? Joseph breaks down. Joseph starts weeping. Joseph has to turn away. It's incredible. The brothers here are starting to finally feel the weight of their actions. Reuben makes this really clear in what he says. Now, is the grief that they have here, is it godly grief or is it worldly grief? You might say, well, what's the difference? They're both grief. They're both grief. Here's the difference. Godly grief is the realization that we've sinned against God, a holy God who loves us, who wants a relationship with us. And it hurts us that there would be a division in that relationship or something to get in the way of that relationship because of our rebellion. It, it wants and desires to make things right with this God that we love. It's not based on consequence, but it's based on relationship. Where on the other hand, worldly grief is where we find the brothers really right now or somewhere maybe a little in between. The grief is connected directly to the consequences they believe they are facing because of the wrong that they've done. I feel bad mainly because I, I don't want to die. <laughs> I don't want to lose any more brothers and I don't want to deal with our actions. It might have major consequences here. What we don't fully see here yet, and I say yet because thank goodness God is working in the midst of this broken, wayward family, is a real heart change on behalf of the brothers. What we see here is concern for their actions that might cost them. 
I don't know if you know this, but the IRS has a fund set up called the uh, Federal Conscience Fund. It's a real thing. It is a fund where you can send money, write a check, send money, if you feel guilty or bad about not paying all of your taxes. It's real. You can send it in. Look it up today, right? I was reading uh, this, this one guy wrote this note. He enclosed... Um, he gave a check of $100. He said, with his note, enclosed you will find $100. I haven't been able to sleep at night knowing that I didn't pay this on my taxes. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest that I owe. <laughs> like, All right. Not quite there. Some worldly grief there. Doesn't want to get in trouble, but hey, here's a good faith offering, right? His brothers are kind of in between, but God's doing a work. He's doing a work in their lives. He's doing a work in Joseph at the same time. That's where we really have two sides of the coin here and sin. Sin that's committed and sin that's committed against. So Joseph hears what his brothers have to say, what they've done, what he knows is wrong. How does he respond? He could have responded a lot of different ways. Here's how he did it. He composed himself. He returned to them and spoke to them and he took Simeon from them and he bound him before their eyes. He continues with his plan. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack, and to give them provisions, food, what they needed for their journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with grain and they departed. Joseph could have responded in anger. Joseph could have had them imprisoned. Joseph could have sent them away empty-handed just to go and suffer and die. And instead, what does he do? He responds in compassion. He responds in a very unexpected way. He actually gives them more than they ask for. He lets them keep their money, he gives them grain, he gives them food, and he sends them on their way. God is clearly doing a work in this family. He's confronting the brothers with their sin, that's really clear. But he's also confronting Joseph with the sin that's been done against him, that he hasn't really fully dealt with. And he's giving him a heart of compassion instead of hate. Because remember, this was all something he wanted to forget. A chapter ago, he names both of his children. Do you remember one of the names? Manasseh. God has made me forget entirely my troubles and my father's house. He wanted to push this to the side, never think about it again, but this was not God's plan for him. And it was not God's plan for his brothers or his father. Let's continue in this. So they're on their journey, going back home. As one of them opened their sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of the sack, and he said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. Shouldn't have been there. At this, their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another. What is this that God has done to us? So Joseph, unbeknownst to them, has put their money back in their packs, showing kindness, and yet they're scared. Why? One, they didn't see the whole picture. And two, they felt such guilt and fear, not only of what they have done, but of what now might be done to them because money is still there that should have been paid out. They asked this question, what has God done to us? But here's the thing. This was the wrong question. God hadn't done anything to them. The right question would have been, what have we done? 
And this sort of gets to the heartbeat of this weightiness of our sin coming to that place. Not blame, not pushing to the side, but looking yourself in the mirror and having to ask, what have I done? What have I done before a holy God? What have I done before people that I love and I know love me? This isn't easy. This is messy. We don't like talking about it. I don't love preaching on it today, can I be honest? Because sin is not something that we really want to sit with. And yet, even our sin, God uses with purpose. Not punishment, as we'll see, but with purpose. Is it because he hates you? Is it because he wants to punish you? No, it's because he loves you. And that can be hard to grasp. These brothers are dealing with this weight of this unchecked and undealt with sin. And in their minds, they believe this is punishment from what they've done 20 years ago. But in reality, God is working for their good in spite of their sin. Any of you go to the chiropractor? I do on occasion. I should go far more. Um, Occasionally you'll see me up here like hunched over. It's because I pulled a neck or or pulled my neck, not a neck, my (laughs) neck. Man, stick to the notes. Um, If you go to the chiropractor, though, and you get adjusted, immediately when they adjust you, there is this discomfort. It's like, ah. But then what follows is relief. That's God's discipline toward his kids. Is God ever punishing his kids? Let me just tell you emphatically, no. That punishment has already been dealt with. We'll talk about that in a minute. It's the good news. He's never punishing his kids, but he does discipline his kids because he loves them. The Bible tells us, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He comes after. He loves you that much that he doesn't want to just leave you sitting in it or let you go completely sideways and destroy yourself, destroy others, and wreck your life. Is his discipline always easy? No. Does sin sometimes come with great consequence, even when we bring it to the light? Yes. But is God good and he does have purpose in it and he wants to help us grow and become more like Jesus? Yes. It's never punishment. It's always discipline for his kids, kids who he loves. So in this, as the brothers are feeling this weight, here's what we see. When they came to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to him, saying, the man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be his spies of the land. But, when, but we said to him, we're honest men. We've never been spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more. Still telling a lie here. And the youngest in this day with our fathers in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me. Take grain from the family of your households and go away. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know you are not spies but honest men. I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall be able to trade in the land. So the brothers come back to their father, and they essentially recount this story of what's happened. And here's what happens next. They're already scared. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob said, and Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Like you left your brother there, we're never gonna get him back. Joseph is no more, Simeon's now no more, and now you have taken Benjamin. And all of and now you would take Benjamin. And all this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, 
Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he's the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you were to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Literally meaning hell. What really stands out here to me, and I don't know if it stood out to you in this section of our story, is this word that's popped up again and again from the brothers. Honest. <laughs> We're honest men. Are you honest men? For 20 years, 20 years have gone by. They've been burying this sin, and now they're confronted with it. What they tried so hard to bury, and are even still burying to extent because they can't be honest with their father about what really happened, it's starting to come to the surface. Here's a big application for today for us. Don't bury your sin. Seriously, don't bury it. Don't try to ignore it. Don't push it under a rug. And don't bury the sin that's been done against you that you haven't really dealt with. Maybe you haven't offered forgiveness. Maybe you have an open wound that needs healing. Don't bury that. God, through a number of situations and circumstances in our lives, brings sin to the surface, and it's not out of hate. It's out of love. It's out of absolute love to kids who are still living in a broken world, who are still fighting against the flesh, Often when we're faced with the weight of our sin, our first response is one of two. Either we first run to hide, and that goes all the way back to the original sin. Remember in the garden, Adam and Eve sin, what do they do? They go and hide. They go and hide from God. Or we try to find some way to compensate for it. We try to atone on our own. We try to do good deeds to make it seem like, all right, maybe I've done enough good now to make this right or to level things out. If you think about what our society tells us, it tells us to follow the path that Joseph's brothers have essentially followed up to this point. That what you need to do is really just ignore the guilt and shame. You don't need God's forgiveness. You just need to forgive yourself and just move on. Stop caring so much about morality. Who really knows what's right and wrong anyway? But you and I were not created to treat sin lightly. We weren't wired for it. It deforms us, it contorts us, it brings about pain. But if we didn't feel this weight, if we didn't feel the discomfort, if we didn't feel the wedge in relationships, we would become so comfortable with sin that we wouldn't see the need to do anything with it and we would simply bury it or ignore it. But this is where the gospel is fundamentally different. The gospel first condemns, and admittedly, you're like, that doesn't sound like good news. Like, I thought we were about good news. We are. We're getting there. I promise. We're moving there. But first, the gospel condemns our sin, and it shows us that we cannot do anything on our own to make up for it, that it's sin against a holy God, that we can't atone for it, that we can't bury it deep enough we can't cleanse ourselves or offset. And if it's up to us to take care of our sin, our brokenness, our waywardness on our own, we're completely hopeless. Sin has both internal and external effects. And I've experienced both of these. 
whether it's sinning that's led to hiding or whether it's being sinned against that's led to even some uh, emotional uh, distancing, I would say, a challenge to experience certain emotions because you become numb to it, there are real effects. And some of you know these effects. Some of you know these effects far too well, either from the past or the present. You've either been there or you are there. The internal effects of sin, you feel the weight, you feel the numbness, feeling consumed, feeling trapped, feeling guilt or shame, or it's the external effects of sin or being sinned against, feeling the tension that it's caused in your relationships, so the brokenness in relationships, the wounds, the lies, the dishonesty, the hiding, a weight that feels unbearable, a weight that feels unbeatable. If you even think about the season that we're in right now, Lent, we entered that on Ash Wednesday. This whole season is about sitting with the weight of our sin. Not so that we're condemned by it, but to understand how much it costs. So that we don't make light of it. But here's the other good thing, or the other thing the gospel tells us. Ready for good news? I hope so. Um, There's a way out. There's a way out. This wonderful news that God himself has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And I know we've heard this over and over, but let it sink in. That God sends Jesus into this world to die in our place. Where Jacob feared here to send his son Benjamin to Egypt because of the harm that he worried might come to him. God, on the other hand, knew exactly what would happen to his beloved son as he sent him into this world. He knew exactly what the sons of Israel would do to the son that he loved, that they would mock him, that they would beat him, that they would spit upon him, that they would crucify him, put him to death. God loves you so much that he sent his son to do exactly this, to die for you, and with that death, to put every drop of your sin to death. And that's incredibly good news for us. Why is that good news? Because it means that we don't have to bury our sin. We don't have to hide. We don't have to ignore it. We don't have to pretend that we haven't been sinned against. Instead of burying it, we can actually experience the freedom that comes from bringing it into the light. The freedom of knowing that when I confess this, when I open up about this, when I'm honest, I don't face condemnation from God, but I face compassion and kindness and grace that comes from this loving God who loves me enough. All I need to see the proof of it is to look at the cross, to offer his son to take absolutely all of it, to bring this sin into the light. The gospel says this, if we confess our sins and we say this every single week. And why do we say this? Because we need to be assured of the pardon that comes through Jesus. It's what makes confession possible that we're not afraid of getting hit over the hand or condemned, but we know that we're going to be met with grace at the throne. That he will be faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So don't bury it. Don't bury it. It'll wreck you. It'll destroy you. It'll wreak havoc. That's not what God wants for you. That's not what God wants for you. 
in this passage, it leaves us in a pretty dark place. One son is offering to kill both of his sons if he doesn't bring back the other son from Egypt. And a father is saying he essentially feels like he's in hell. This is tough. Is God destroying this family? Is he punishing them? No. (laughs) He's actually in the process of saving them. But he's working out some things along the way. He's changing hearts along the way. He's bringing things to the surface along the way. Before they can see the true beauty of God's grace, despite what they've done, they need to feel the weight and effects of their actions that haven't been confessed, that haven't been dealt with, that have been buried for 20 years. Otherwise, this grace would be cheap. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about cheap grace. He says this, Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves Cheap grace is forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's communion without confession. It's grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And this is our big idea for today for us to take hold of. It's only when we recognize the weight of our sin and its effects can we truly appreciate the beauty of God's grace. Grace that says you don't need to live your life walking around with your head hung low. Instead, you can bring your brokenness. You can bring your sin. You can bring your rebellion. You can bring it all into the light. Think about the prodigal son who comes back home. Jesus invites us to come back home time and time again. For the sin that's confessed, there's freedom. For the sin that's forgiven, there's a weight lifted. There is hope. There's healing. And that's exactly what God wants to do in the midst of the brokenness. That's what he's doing in this family. Even though they fully don't understand it, they don't see the whole picture, you might be in the same place. Don't bear your sin. Might it carry some consequences? Yes. But it is far better to bring that in the light and to experience the grace and forgiveness of Jesus than to keep it buried. The story continues to unfold, and I love it. We see this grace that comes from a God who's slow to anger, who's compassionate, who's a God of love. So the question today is, one, what do we need to confess? If you've been harboring or holding something for a day, a week, a month, a year, a lifetime, what does it look like to confess that today and to find freedom, to have that weight lifted by the God who's already paid for it. Don't put Jesus back on the cross today. Don't put him back on the cross. Anytime we try to make up for our sin, anytime we try to hide our sin, it's essentially just saying, Jesus, your payment wasn't enough. And guess what? It was. So trust him with that. Let it be enough. Let it be finished. Bring it into the light. Experience freedom from the bondage of sin. Maybe you need to confess to someone that you've sinned against. Maybe you need to confess before God. What do you need to unearth today that's been buried, as painful as it might be? Where do you need to trust God and find that freedom? Maybe you're someone who used to bury sin, but God's changed that part of your life and you've experienced that freedom. Would you now be a brother or sister to the person who needs to experience that? Would you encourage them to walk out into the light? Would you clothe them in love and compassion and remind them of the righteousness they're clothed in in Jesus? Not only do we have a gracious father who's made a way to forgiveness through his son, we also have a community of brothers and sisters around us to walk all of this out. Thank goodness. Here's the effects, the beautiful effects of not bearing your sin. Honesty. Honesty that leads to vulnerability. 
a vulnerability that leads to being known and knownness that leads to freedom. It's what we all want. Don't let fear take hold. Let the truth of the gospel take hold. Some of you have experienced this in major ways. It's one of the cultural values of our church, a people who don't have to hide but can be completely known in the good and the brokenness and everything in between. Because we have a Savior who has already put our sin of the past, present, and future to death. And that's good news, church. Amen? Changes everything. Only when we recognize the weight of our sin and its effects can we fully appreciate the beauty of God's grace. And what a beautiful, amazing grace it is. It will change this family. It will change generations to come. It will change your life. It will change our community. Yes, sit with the weight of sin and stare gloriously upon the beauty of God's grace. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth, even though sometimes it is a large pill to swallow. God, I pray that you would bring freedom throughout this room today. I pray that you would release chains that have been there for years. I pray that you would restore relationships that have been broken, relationships that have been wounded. God, I pray that there might even be new relationships started today, a relationship with you, God, that that people might come out of hiding and say, I give you all of it, Jesus. I give you all of it. I trust that, I trust that you can take it. I trust that you paid for it. I, I want to receive your forgiveness. I confess. I confess all of these things that I've done. I confess that I've ran from you. Instead, I want to turn. I want to turn to you, and I just give this to you today. Just an honest confession. God, would you welcome more kids into the family today? God, would you bring freedom? Don't let us bury our sin. Let us walk in the light the light of your grace, the light of your goodness, the light of your compassion, the light of your love, not only for our sake, but for the sake of our kids, for the sake of our community, for the sake of what you're doing in our city. Would we be a people that trust in your goodness and your grace? Jesus, we thank you for being so good, even when we are not. We thank you that there is nothing we can do that is too great or too big for your grace. We pray this in your name. Amen.